Hello, everybody. It is a beautiful Monday. Welcome to the Witty Writer Show. And I am so excited because I have with me today, Paul Rushworth Brown. Hello, Paul. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been so excited today. And I have to tell you, Paul, I have had messages and messages of people who have been super excited that you're coming back on the show today. So it's brilliant. And we've also we've also got two very special guests with us. We've also got Amber. Hello, Amber. How are you? Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm great. And I believe you're you're calling us from your library where you work. Tell us a bit about your library. Yep. So I work at a library in Rockford, Michigan, and we are currently um, not doing programming uh, because of COVID, but we are able to join you through um through virtual so it's fantastic i love technology isn't it great it's been a godsend and i don't know about you amber but it must be you know a savior for your library being able to do online activities and and things like this because obviously covid's pretty much put a mocker on everything really hasn't it yeah it's it's a damper It is. We've also got the lovely Sue Merrill. Hello, Sue. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Now, Sue, you're actually part of a um, a book club and reviewing club. Tell us a bit about it. Well, Amber is in charge of it. It is through our public library, and we've been going strong for. I moved to Rockford, Michigan, in 2001. That's the very first thing I did is join the book discussion group and the library. And we've been meeting once a month for a very, very long time. Even through um, COVID. And of course, you know, when COVID hit, uh, we switched to virtual, but we were able to still check out our library books through a, I can't remember what we Curbside. called it. Curbside, yeah. So we pull in, we call, say, I'm here to pick up the book, and away we went, and then we would discuss on Zoom. And we were doing that for, I don't know, probably close to six, eight months, and then we were able to go live. Uh, Some people didn't feel comfortable meeting at the library, so we would have, or Amber would have her computer set up with the virtual so we could still see those people as well. And then we had to go to everything virtual as of today. I mean, today is our first time we would have met as a group. Yep. Wow. Isn't it amazing how we all adapt? I'll tell you. (laughs) It really is. And I love the fact that you were doing curbside pickups and and drop-offs. Now, the reason you lovely ladies are joining us today is because the fantastic Paul Rushworth-Brown has as about to release his latest book, which is Red Winter Journey. And I'm all, I'm so excited for you, Paul. <laughs> so, but you guys have actually been reading and uh, and reviewing it. So I'm super, super excited to, to hear what you think of, of Paul's new book. Firstly, though, Paul, I would like to talk quickly about School Doggery because that was the first novel that you wrote wasn't it about these characters um fantastic book and and oh my gosh the amount of reviews i've read that have been absolutely phenomenal it's been truly fantastic now i'm just going to quickly read um the description of skullduggery for for our new viewers who uh who haven't checked it out yet 
It says, the bleak Pennine Moors of Yorkshire is a beautiful, harsh place close to the sky, rugged and rough, no boundaries except the horizon, which in some places went on forever. Green pastures and wayward hills are the colours of okra, brown and pink in the spring. Green squares divided the land on one side of the lane and on the other. Sheep with thick wool and dark snouts dotted the hills and dales. One room, Cruck House cottages are scattered, smoke billowing out of some and not others. Dry stone walls are dividing and falling, a patchwork of green, green and more green. Long grasses, grasses whispered while swaying in the chilled wind, waiting for the summer months. The story set on the moors of West Yorkshire follows Wee Thomas and his family shortly after losing his father to consumption. Times were tough in 90, sorry, 1590, and there were shenanigans, I love that word, and skullduggery committed by locals and outsiders alike. Queen Bess has died, and King James sits on the throne of England and Scotland. Thomas Rushworth is now the man of the house, being the older of the two boys. He is set to marry Agnes in an arranged marriage, but the love story develops between them. This rollicking adventure paints a descriptive picture of the characters and the landscape they fill. You are kept in suspense to the final pages where one hopes good will triumph over evil. I love that description. I mean, <clears throat> when I think back, it seems so long ago now. Like, I mean, that that uh, first paragraph was probably one, the first paragraph I ever wrote as, a, as an author. And uh, just, you know, so much has happened since uh, 2019. It's just, um, you know, when, when you read it, I think, my God, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> what does skullduggery mean? Skullduggery is sort of like uh, mischief. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I love it. Very I love old it. word. Shenanigans is one of my favorite words as well. Shenanigans and skullduggery. I, I absolutely love them. And those words really, really sum up your story. And, and, and I say that because I've read so many of your reviews, as I said earlier, and, and it, they just pinpoint the story so well because your skullduggery is a, a real roller coaster, isn't it? It's got everything, action, love, betrayal. You know, it, it's got all the elements of real life. And the great thing is, is that you had to research your family's history while writing skullduggery yeah i mean one of the, one of the uh, the main things that i i really enjoyed about writing uh, skullduggery was um researching how things were done back then in 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 the 16th century um or late late 16th century you know like um obviously there was no marriage it was all about um signing bonds and and hand fastings and you know there's all these sort of like traditions that are, that have obviously sort of like died out that um were were an integral part of people's lives um you know and uh, you know the the, the uh one of my, one of my favorite um scenes in that novel was sort of like the um the the wedding and uh you know how the um how, how the the characters and the people in the village sort of like um celebrated uh agnes and, and thomas's um betrothal and uh, you know some of the i, I suppose some of the um customs you know for instance um there's one scene where um 
the men in the village have to have a race and they have to have a race back to um, uh, Thomas's cottage. And the first one there, um, and this is a natural custom that used to occur back then. The first one there, there's, there's actually a, a, a tankard of um, a veil sitting on the bed. Anyway, the first one there sort of like get, gets to drink the, the, um, the tankard, bring the tankard back to the, 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 um, to Agnes, and then she takes off a garter and gives it to the winner. Huh? Right. So, um, just those sort of like little uh, intricacies of customs and that 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 um, that, that occurred back then is it, just it's just wonderful. It's amazing, isn't it? It's funny how some things have have carried on through time and other things haven't. Obviously, you know, you know, a lot of a lot of women still have a garter when they get married. Yeah. Um, Oh my gosh! I, do you know? I think when I got married, if my husband had had the chance of down in a tankard and then bringing it back to me, he probably would have done. <laughs> <laughs> probably would have won as well. <laughs> Paul, did you have any of these uh, customs and stuff in your family background that you knew about, or did you learn all these things when you started doing your research? No, I just want to start doing my research. Um, just to give you a, a bit of a background. Sue, um, probably about five years ago, I, I started researching family history and um, it was mainly for my kids. It took me about six months um, and I traced my furthest away ancestor back to a small town that you may have heard of, Howarth, which is like Bronte country where the Bronte sisters grew up. And uh, my ancestors and family have been living there since, uh, si since the 16th century. And the first one to move move away from that that uh, village was actually my great grandfather, and he moved to uh, Denham um, in the early eighteen hundreds. But um, I suppose the way the way it came around was that um, I was wondered what um, what what life was like back then for my earliest ancestor. And I suppose two years later, um, I thought you know that was quite interesting doing that um, that. Uh, uh, writing that that it was a it was a 400 page book i only got five printed for my kids and uh so i just started to fictionalize his life and that was basically the birth of, of skullduggery okay it's just amazing isn't it it really really is we've, we've got quite a few people joining us so make sure you say hello everybody um and if you do have any questions for paul please pop them in the in the comments um we've got oh there we go we've got theodore hello theodore uh, Theodore actually has his own group on Facebook for for book lovers and uh, and authors, and we've also got my mum, oh. and she loved seeing you on the show last time, Paul. So she's back again to say hello. Hello, mum. Love you. Um, hello. So it, do you know it, it actually amazes me how you've been able to create two amazing novels. From, from doing research about your own family. But how different was it this time, Paul? I mean, obviously, you know, you've come along such a long way um, from, from doing the original research and then writing Skullduggery. How was it for you writing Red Winter Journey, the next book? I mean, once uh, Shoreline picked up Skullduggery and uh, signed a contract with them, a new process started. It was sort of like the same, the same novel, but um, just the interaction between myself and the publisher. You just learn so much 
Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully I've like, you know, taken on a lot of feedback from people that have read it and, um, um, and applied that into the second novel. And um, I had to wait a year between when I first signed the contract for Red Winter Journey and to when it's, uh, well, it's now going through the editing process. Um, I actually went right back through the, through the novel and uh, develop the characters a little bit more. And um, I suppose one of the biggest things I've learned as an author is just to be a little bit more patient. And, um, and hopefully I've, uh, I've come up with a, a, a good story. Yeah. I, I suppose for, for authors and readers, there's an element that is the same. And I'm sure Amber and, and you, Sue, will agree by the time you've finished a novel, you feel like you really, really know the characters, don't you, so well. You know their little twerks, their personalities and everything else. Um, but it's the same as an author as well. When you start a book, you're just discovering your characters. You're, you know, Their quirks and their personalities come out as you write your novel. So by the end of the novel, you, you do know your characters really, really well which is why it's so important to go over your, your work numerous times to, to fill in those characteristics and personality traits and everything so that they're right from the right from the beginning, not just towards the end as you've got to know them. <laughs> well, and that leads me to another question. How, you know, you had certain facts um, and historical background that you knew definitely about your ancestors. How... Did you know, I guess I say, do you know enough about them so that you knew how to um, create the wife or create other family members or children or whatever that you know would be, you know, compatible with them, for example? Because I, I mean, think I, I, one time I the women weren't recorded. In yeah, I mean, I, I use a lot of um, uh, historical databases written by um basically uh, science scientists that um okay. that have you know heavily researched those times but all i mean obviously uh you know my earliest evidence of my great grandfather thomas rushworth times 10 i found in a court manor roll um dating back to 1590 and uh so the a lot of the uh the characters in 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 um red winter journey are actually True to life, the na their names, um, oh. but the, the the story around it, I, I can't sort of obviously go back in time and find out you know what what Thomas Rushworth was actually like, but that's where my imagination comes in, and you know I, I try to put a little bit of uh, little of some of the characteristics of my father in him, uh, possibly some of the ca characteristics of myself, just to, to like develop the character. And, and also, I suppose um, you've got to realize that the, these peasants um, back then, uh, you know, the, 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 there's heaps of stories written about nobil the nobility and that very little has been written about the peasants. And that's sort of like one thing I wanted to get across is, you know, what these people were like. And they were, they were, they were a lowly lot. <coughs> um, and I went into sort of like old transcriptions of, of uh, so like um, letters written about those particular people okay. by the nobility or by you know so the rich, the richer folk and they were they were sort of like a, they were they were considered animals they swore they uh, you know that they, they 
spent, they were drunk. Um, and the thing is, I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to overburden the story with all that type of thing. So what I did, what I did is I actually picked one or two characters and, and made them uh, sort of like, a, I suppose, an epitome of what people who looked after cattle up in the moors of Yorkshire in, 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 uh, in the 17th century, what they possibly would have been like. But I didn't want every character to be like that. So I suppose what I'm saying is that uh, um, Thomas Rushworth, my, my great-grandfather, was made up of, of uh, you know, different characteristics of, of myself and my father and, um, you know, other people that I'm, I've, I've met. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, one of the things that truly amazes me is the fact that the UK, especially England, is so small. You could fit, you could fit um, Britain inside of Alabama. It's such a small country. And yet, even though it's so small, there are so many different accents, literally from north to south, so many different accents. And back in those days, the accents were so strong, so strong because people didn't travel much. They they stayed within the, you know, their towns and villages because most of them didn't have, you know, the means to be able to travel and, and everything else. And also you you found that, and, and Paul will probably agree with this, families tended to stick together because it was safer. Um, they could help each other out. There was, you know, families were so close-knit and, and tight. Um but it also meant that their accents were very hard to understand. I think one of the things that I really admire about your, your novels, um, School Duggery and Red, Red Winter Journey, is the fact that you gave a taste of their deep accent without being too overpowering where nobody could understand what they were saying. Because it's a fine line, isn't it? <laughs> Between giving the accent, but the reader being able to understand and follow a flowing story yeah well when i when i first wrote skullduggery there's a lot more um dialect in there and uh when when it was uh picked up by by um shoreline publishing i had to go back and edit it and actually take out some of the dialect because um i mean when i originally wrote the the novel it was uh um it was just probably a little bit too hard for people for the general public to understand so I just had to sort of like tone that down a little bit. And in in uh, Red Winter Journey, there's a little bit of dialect in that in there. But um, once once again, it, I've I've toned it right down. But I just like to sort of like make it as authentic as possible, and uh, you know give give uh, some uh, give readers you know some idea of what um, you know what these people sounded like. There's actually an interesting uh, um, website on uh, on that you can go to. And they t what they've done is they've taken this phrase, all right, and they've recorded what it would have sounded like back in the early 1600s, and then 1650, 1700s, 1750, 1800s. And it's amazing wow. over, over the period of that 200 years how that accent in that particular part of England, and it, it is up north in Yorkshire, how, how much it change, changed over that period of 200 years. Oh my God! I would love do to you hear. Do think that. that had anything to do with, as time went on, they became more educated? Uh, well, not my lot because they're all sort of like. Uh, I mean, I think they 
started first going to school just to read the Bible in sort of like the, I think it was in the early 1800s. So, um, I mean, there was obviously there's child labor. So if um, up in the West Riding, where my family came from, um, there's very little ed education until until the 1800s. And as soon as you got to the age of sort of like 12, that was it. You were out in the out in the uh, barley fields weeding and and uh, pulling the plow. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was. Uh, I think my, um, my my great grandfather was actually taught by uh, Charlotte Bronte in uh, in the in the um, the school in in Howth. Huh. Wow. Uh, I think he was sort of like one of the first people to be to actually be educated. Prior to then, it would have been uh, just reading the Bible and and that type of thing. It's amazing, isn't it? I think there's probably an element of of migration that's probably changed a lot of the accents as well because people tend to go where there's work or where they think they can have a better life. And you would get a lot of people from up north, you know, trying to get to London where it was a lot more affluent to try and make their mark or, you know, improve their life. And then they would pick up some of that accent or their own accent would tone down. They would either be successful or not. And if they weren't successful, they'd end up going back up north with a tail between their legs, but with those verbal changes. It's, it's, it, it's truly amazing. It really is. Amber, how was reading Red Winter Journey for you? Because obviously, you know, it's it's in the heart of, of England, um, completely yep. different time era. Did you feel immersed in, in the I culture? did. And actually, I wrote some stuff down. Um, first of all, I didn't know that the animals lived inside with the people. <laughs> so that was new for me. And I do, I read a lot of historical fiction. So I, I actually learned quite a bit in this book. Um, another thing that I was impressed with um, is that the family seemed to live together. The brothers were living together. The, bro the grown son lived with them. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and it, it was probably a, a very small house, cottage yeah. type thing. Um, but also, I was wondering, for your ancestors during this time, you were saying that they were considered peasants? Yeah. Were they um, farmers? Yeah, well, they're actually um, tenants, uh, well, tenants to uh, Lord Burkhead, right? So back then, there was... Uh, something called a copy hold and this probably um skullduggery talks more about that but what used to happen is uh a, a peasant family would would tenant say a 10 acre block of land to the from the uh the the lord of the manor the local lord of the manor which in in red winter journeys uh, case was was lord burkhead and he was actually the lord at that time okay and um they would have to pay tith to the church. So anything they grew or if, if they, uh, if during lambing, if they had more lambs, they'd have to give 10% of everything they grew um, to the church. And then they'd have to give a certain amount of that to Lord Burkhead and anything that was left, they could keep. And okay. like, um, you know, get it made into grain and or get the grain and make it into bread. Um, you know, that they'd, ha they'd have a few sheep. Um, but as a copyholder, they 
also had to work three days for free to to Lord Burkett for the for the um, for the use of his land. Oh wow! Wow! And and they were allowed to to <coughs> have one one cottage on there. Now around that time, or just before that time, um, there was a lot of issues with uh, um, the plague and that type of thing. So a lot of people died in, during that. And it didn't really. It went to York, but it really didn't uh, go to Howarth. But what tended to happen is because um, there weren't that many, um, um, not as many people around. The the lords of the manor tended to keep, if if they were good to like hardworking families would tend to keep them and uh, not look after them, but, you know, they could get a, a copy hold for a long time. Okay. Now, in, in um, Red Winter Journey, they actually become freemen, right? So um, copy hold was sort of like under the, the feudal system, but then they became freemen expecting, um, uh, you know, a better life and all that type of thing. But really things didn't change. They started to pay the tithes to the church, started to... Um, um you know give a certain amount of their grain and that to to lord burkhead um but they were considered freemen and so they they met every month for the the manor court like yeah. it said in the book okay yeah yeah and they, and if they didn't go they'd be fine wow and if they didn't go to church they'd be fine if they if um they uh um you know there, there was there was a constable and uh he'd make sure that make sure to take the names of people that didn't go to church and it was yeah it was a very sort of like controlling controlling um environment it's amazing wow. isn't it it's amazing and, and the the lords and the duchesses and and all the sort of royalty and and below they had such power in that era they really really did they controlled pretty much everything mm -hmm. but what's interesting for me is that you're bringing back history that's you know been long forgotten um, there are so many historical places in the UK that still have these little cottages um, that, you know, people like your family members used to live in, yeah. you know, and they, they've been modernised and they've been converted, they've been restored, um, and there's still that history there. But, you know, my children's generation, they've got no clue. They, they don't know about anything about that. But I remember going yeah. on school trips and going to these beautiful places uh, and seeing these beautiful grounds that still had these little cottages on, as Amber said, a whole family would live in there. You know, there'd be like four or five to a bed, you know, a bedroom. You know, the parents would end up, you know, or, or the parents would end up having a bedroom and the kids would just be tucked away here, there and everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, quite often... You know, th there was no bedroom. You know, everybody sort of like, you know, you could have a family of nine uh, sleeping on sort of like rolled up mattresses in, you know, in a one room cottage, you yeah. know, with, with a loft upstairs where they kept the hay. <laughs> yeah. Well, so when, um, you know, let's say Thomas was a, a freeman, mm. does his property and the land automatically get given to Tommy? when he dies or does the Lord decide if they're allowed to stay there and be a freeman or a caregiver, care holder? Well, um, what, ha what happens is uh, um, they were given life hold. So there was this law where if a, if a uh, Lord 
um, tenanted part of his land to a particular family, they would have life hold for I think it was a period of ninety years, right? Oh, okay. But there was but so that 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 land would actually pass on to his son Tommy, right? But you got to understand that I mean the, these uh, the, the the nobles and you know the lords of the manor and that they were quite they were quite unscrupulous, and you know they would um, if if somebody didn't have a uh, have a uh, a life hold, there was something called a um, a ruck ruck rents or rack rack rents, and they could charge and um, raise the rents on 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 this land when they wanted to, hmm. but because because Tom, because Thomas and Tommy had life hold, there was a little bit of contention there, um, and legally he couldn't. In other words, he could keep paying the same rent for years and years and years until basically I think it was uh, three lifetimes until um, and, until they died then obviously he'd get new tenants. Wow. Yeah. I, bet the, I bet the Lord was praying that they wouldn't turn up for their meetings just so they could get rid of them <laughs> and yeah. up the, rent the next person. <laughs> and what was the average life expectancy at that time? Back then it was if you lived to 40 you were doing old. really really well. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that because in the book, it, Tommy is 16, correct? So is mm. is that the the normal age during that time to get married and have kids and go off to war uh, and all that? Uh, they could. They could. Uh, okay. uh, interestingly enough, um, health was uh, coming forward a little bit um, into like the early 1800s. Uh, health was, um, was said to be one of the filthiest places in England. Almost like a White 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 Hall in uh, London, and that's the send that sent a, uh, a a gentleman um, after he was asked by Patrick Bronte actually to go up there and have a look at you know why people were why the uh, the infant mortality rate was so <laughs> high, uh, why people were dying at the age of so like 29, 30, 34. Um, and it turned out that you know um, the place was just filthy. Um, you know, there was like uh, one privy to 65 families and the water was contaminated. Um, the, uh, the, the, um, the church, uh, St. All, All Angels, actually sits on the top of the hill and the main road of Howarth actually slopes downwards. Now, all the graves at the top in that uh, cemetery are actually um, covered with the, the stone is actually laid horizontal. And the problem with it, with that was that um, the the bodies didn't didn't um, what's the word they didn't uh, um, help me out here. Decompose. Yeah, they didn't decompose. So when it rained, all the water would go into the cemetery and pick up all sorts of things oh. and sort of like run down the middle of the road. But at that time in the eighteen hundreds, people were living in basement dwellings. Mm. So all the all the uh, water and that would obviously rush into their sort of like uh, basement dwellings and and everything would get uh, soaked but also the um the slaughter the butcher um and his uh, slaughter place was in the bottom of the king's arms which was, was at the top of the uh, the road as well and so all his um you know guts and gory bits would sort of like flow down the, the road into down the main road 
so yeah it was a you know you can see why um um people didn't live to be very very old you can also understand why they used to drink a lot of ale yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was better than the water <laughs> we've got a couple more people joining us i'm going to pop their their messages up josephine says sorry i'm late but i'm here hello josephine he is so awesome um we've also got the fabulous elizabeth she says hello beth hello everyone so hello. so interesting to hear this um, and I do know, I, I was getting messages from another author called Robin Washington, and she was desperate to see you today on the show. Um, but I think she's ended up having to work. So I bet she's cursing her bosses right now. <laughs> and she's thankful for YouTube. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it truly is amazing how how everything has changed and developed and um, and 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 how people's lifestyles sometimes change for the better, sometimes change for the worse. I'm of, you know, I, I'm over 50. I remember as a very young child, families, big families living in very small houses um, and making do because they had no other choice. But also they were so close knit, you know, mm. they were such tight families. They would all eat together. They would listen to the radio together you know they would do all these things there's a lot of elements i think from the past that we've lost as a society um do you feel that you know there are some things that should be maintained or that we should bring back any of you i mean i i sort of feel that um you know, some families still have that sort of like uh, close, close connection. Others don't. I mean, interestingly, interestingly, you know, one of the aspects of um, uh, Red Winter Journey is that sort of like uh, close knit love between a father and a son. And um, you know, that's that's sort of like uh, totally opposite to my to, to my uh, to my my growing up or myself growing up because. Uh, Mum and dad was like separated when I was about nine. I didn't see him for about 10 years. But um, wow. um, yeah, it's, I, I mean, re really, um, Red Winter Journey, I mean, that, uh, that, um, that word journey, I think, is such an important part of that, of, of that novel because it, it is a journey. It's a journey for, uh, for um, uh, Tommy you know, growing up and becoming a man it's uh you know a love story really between you know a father and a son and his father trying to save him from 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 you know the war that he didn't want any part of i mean what we've got to understand is these people were surviving you know they were they they spent 16 hour days out in the fields you know they they um they you know they had difficulty getting food yeah you know and um Living day to day like that, I mean, you know, you just wonder. I sort of wonder why I'm here sometimes. You know, some of the things they would that they would have gone through. You know, also like on the uh, you know, with the setting of the of the English Civil War. I mean, a very tumultuous time in in uh, in Western history that uh, that that had a huge bearing on on our politics, on our on our uh, justice system, on our um, parliamentary system. Um, and 
yeah, <laughs> getting back to, you, to your question. Yeah, I think there's sort of like some aspects that, that have been lost. I mean, I think there's some aspects that some uh, things that, um, um, as, as I mentioned, customs and things like that, that, um, you know, unless, uh, you know, they're written about, um, they'll never be known. And yeah. the longer time goes on, um, the less we'll know. Yeah. There's a big difference, isn't there, as you said, between living and surviving. And, you know, and, and the people back then were a whole different breed. They knew what hard work was. They knew what it was to be hungry or thirsty and, you know, worry about their children surviving through the winter. It's a whole different ball game. It really, really was. We are practically spoiled nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Lord had no... Um, responsibility i mean it it seems like if you were to keep your workers fed they would be healthy they could put more energy into the work to provide the lord with more food who would help you get you know go in a, in a circle like that but no. they they didn't do that did they no they didn't they weren't interested i mean you know lord burkhead um he would have had probably about uh, 20 different maybe more tenants on his on his lands oh okay and um, each of them you know had the same sort of responsibility looking after his 10 acres of land um and uh, you know they could grow a few sheep um they could, they could um maybe have a cow a few chickens a vegetable garden out the side um and uh you know and no he wasn't he, he wasn't interested in that and where did he get the land where did this lord get the land was it given to him by the king yeah. or so his no so his his father would, would have been the previous lord burkhead oh. so he would have, he would have had ownership of, of that land and things i mean say there's a small village uh, close to house called stanbury and stanbury actually had its own um lord as well and then another village or another sort of like um i probably shouldn't say village because village was sort of like a a small um, habitat of, of cottages and crook houses on his land, if you know what I mean. So his manor was sort of like the, the, the center of what was going on there. And then somewhere on his on his land, there would have been a village. And then all around his lands that he owned, there would have been these uh, 10 acre plots that tenants would work, work um, to, to basically feed themselves, but also um, for, for them to pay his tenancy i mean in those days and even still now lordships and and titles are are passed down through generation to generation to ge generation so you know as soon as a lord and lady had a child that child was then either a, a lord or an, a lady in their own right uh, so all these titles would get passed down and passed down some of them were even given um you know a uh, like a, a salary from the royal family if they had, um, you know, if they looked after the king or queen's army or something like that, they would also get a salary on top of on top of their landship. So it, it was a very, very strange way of life. But, you know, we, we still have it now in the UK. There are still lords and ladies. Yes, yeah. Wow. There, yeah, you can, there are still lords and ladies, duchess, duchesses um you know and duchies 
it's all passed down. And when you think about it, you know, the royal family, you know, they're not just, um, you know, prince and princesses. They also have other titles as well. That you know, a, a, a Duchess of York, for example, you know, so it's still passed down, it's still mm -hmm. done through the royal family and, and then carried on hereditary. What do you think surprised you the most about Red Winter Journey, Amber? Oh, because there's so much in there, isn't it? It's action packed, <laughs> it, yeah, it is. Well, I actually learned quite a bit about, um the war because I yes. didn't know anything about that until this book actually. So just, um, well, and I have a question about that too, roundheads. Mm -hmm. How did that term come about? <laughs> okay. So roundheads were, as you, as you're probably aware, the war was between uh, the Royalists when uh, Charles the first and, and uh, the English parliament had a, had a huge disagreement. He wanted uh, a right of divine rule. Parliament wouldn't give it to him. So that was sort of like the spark for the war. Getting back to your question, roundheads were sort of like parliamentary soldiers. The reason they were called roundheads was because it came from um, the apprentices down in London who supported Parliament, right? And they actually had their hair cut sort of like bowl-like. Bowl oh, roundheads. <laughs> And the uh, the ro the royalists were called cavaliers, and they were sort of like uh, more the, uh, the the no the noble types. And I don't know if you've seen it, um, but you know they used to wear sort of like the the hats with all the plumage and. Okay. And yeah. Yep. So they were called cavaliers. I have to say, if that round head fashion comes back in, I'll be dumb. <laughs> Not <laughs> attractive. <laughs> it's funny but, though, um, isn't it? Because some things do come back into trend from way back when. Oh, yeah, bell bottoms. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> what about you, Sue? What what really stood out to you most? Well, I had to I had to say first of all, I think I commented to Paul in an email about how I was very glad that he had the glossary in there, so that we could go back and forth to see what some of the the terminology was that I didn't have any idea. I mean, some of it, you know, just within the context you could figure out, but then there were others I didn't have a clue. But like Amber said, the war, um, you know, I guess I'm just thinking too much about how things are done nowadays where people enlist and they're trained properly and all that, where, I mean, you just are grabbed by your shirt and away you go. And mm -hmm. although the like a lot of deaths that occurred were not necessarily because of fighting, but dysentery, no food, no water, et cetera, which still, you know, happens today, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, and that, that, that whole idea of uh, the armies having to, um, you know, go to other people's homes and rob them just so that they could feed the army. But uh, not only that, what they do as the army passed through, if there was any sort of like um, animals or sheep or grain, they'd either burn it or kill the animals. So that when the, the opposing army came through that particular area, there was no food for them to eat. Yeah. Right? And, and I mean, there's stories that I wrote of, uh, of uh, oh, sorry, that I read of, um, you know, 
no no water and so like soldiers picking uh you know dirty water up out of um horse footprints to drink and oh. and uh um you know typhus was just rife interestingly enough you know um at that time that in the setting of red winter journey more people died in in that war than in world war one and world war two put together wow, because mind-blowing is that as the armies went through villages and that obviously they'd ransack them and rape and all that type of thing plunder a lot of them had typhus or camp fever and obviously they'd pass that on to the to the residents oh. okay right so um and then you know that that all that all get very very sick and uh yeah it was it was terrible well the reason is it's not something you would automatically think of but you know it's 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 mind-blowing it really is we've got a question for you from elizabeth i'm just going to pop it up on the screen she says is it true a person can now purchase a lordship in today's time you hear of celebrities purchasing and getting approval of getting a lord title boggles my mind how times are constantly changing compared to the culture of a heritage and a title being passed down in one family good question Interesting. Interestingly enough, um, in uh, Australia, there's this um, this advertisement on TV at the present time. There's some loophole in in the uh, Scottish land landlords, and you I can actually that. purchase a lordship and buy basically a foot of land, right, and become oh, become the lord, Lord Rushworth of this one foot square. <laughs> And you, get a same thing. and you get a certificate for it as well <laughs> so so yes elizabeth you're you're absolutely right you can isn't that crazy but i did see the same same type of commercial and, and i was like really <laughs> so you yeah. could become lord paul if you would like yeah yeah and, <laughs> You get all these sort of like um, old Aussie guys saying, "Yeah, you can call me Lord, Lord, uh, Lord Pompadale from now on. I'm Lord of uh, Scotland." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they take they take the certificate down the pub and show all their mates. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it! I love it. Now, are you continuing Tom Thomas and Tommy's story in another book, or are you just have you? had your fill of them oh god no I, I, I reckon there's about 10 books in me right so i've almost ah. um i've the, my next novel is called the uh, dream of courage and i'm just going through the uh, preliminary editing process with it at the present time um and it sort of like follows the next uh um generation but you know they say that novel um that authors should always have sort of like three bo books on the go um writing one wow. editing another and um marketing another so um shoreline have already uh, um, asked me to sign a contract for dream of courage and I've, i'm still like holding off on that at the present time but my next novel um i'm actually going to come forward quite a bit and um to sort of like the um the, the, the 20th century oh there's, there's a tiny little spark in here and it's it's going to be called 10 pound tourist Ten, right? ten pound tourist. Ten pound tourist. Tourist, yeah. 
And I don't know if you don't know if you don't know what a ten pound tourist is. Back in um, so like the the late forties, early fifties, the Australian government um, had an all white policy, and they actually used to offer English people to come over to Australia. Um, they'd pay for their passage, they'd set them up for a job with a job. And find them somewhere to live, and all they'd have to pay is ten pounds. Wow! Yeah. So, and my my dad was a ten pound tourist. So my, my my fourth novel will you know it's it's just an idea at the moment, but my fourth novel will involve that type of thing. And so, like you know, the I suppose the adventure of sort of like uh, spending two weeks on a ship to get to <laughs> Australia, and then being a lot of them was sort of like sent out into the outback to work on sheep farms and. And, um, you know, obviously a place totally different to what they were used to in England. So, um, you know, um, yeah, so it, that's that. I'm hoping that my fourth novel will involve that type of thing. Oh, Sounds interesting. It does. That's brilliant. And I, how you keep it all straight between what is happening in each one of these novels is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, interestingly enough, um, somebody asked me a question the last time uh, I was interviewed. Somebody asked me a question. You know, how do you keep your timeline? But for me, for the first three novels, it's quite easy because it's all generational. Okay. Right. So, and and around that time, things were, um, ha you know, some very, very important things were happening in Red Winter Journey. Some very important things were happening that made it very, I suppose, very, very easy to incorporate a lot of those happening in those things happening in society um, and how they affected um, my ancestors. I just want to quickly share with everybody the cover. Oh, let me turn my brightness up. Hang on a minute. There we go. I just want to share the cover of Red Winter's Journey because it is beautiful. Can you see it? It is absolutely gorgeous. Was that cover your idea, Paul? No. Um, Sue asked me after she uh, when she saw the, the new cover because I put it on social media. Um, she said, oh, there's, there's a new cover. The, the original cover was just a mock cover, right? Oh, so yeah. that, that cover has actually um, been designed by the publisher. And I love, you know, I, I love the way it sort of like depicts that sort of like, um, you know, as I say, because that, that sort of like love between a, a father and his son and, and um, you know, really sort of like comes out with, with that cover with the, with the little boy holding, holding, I suppose, his father's his, his finger. So it really uh, makes yeah, a connection that, with the story. Yeah. yeah. And that's like grainy look, you know. Love it. It yeah. gives such a good feel. It gives that old feel, but it also, I mean, it, uh, as I said to you over Messenger, a picture can speak a thousand words, and that cover really, really does. It, it's absolutely stunning. Amber, for you, who do you who did you connect with the most, do you think, when you read Red Winter Journey? kind of Agnes. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I guess because I have a son who he's older than um, what Tommy was in the book, but I, my son is 20. And so I feel like, you know, he's, he's on the verge of, you know, all of these things. And I kind of feel Agnes trying to protect him and, you know, trying to, keep him as a son and and all that so I, I kind of um 
felt her pain. <laughs> it's hard to let go. I think we've all been there. At some point, you just have to go, okay, off you go. I know, I know. He is in college now, so I, I've been trying. And you don't look old enough to have a 20-year-old son. Oh. <laughs> she doesn't. She really doesn't. And there's me using a ring light to hide my wrinkles. <laughs> I looked like, like a lobster. I got burnt the other day. <laughs> At least you got some nice sun. Yeah. We don't have sun in Michigan, so I'm jealous. <laughs> Um, and also, Amber, what do you think surprised, what elements surprised you the most or made the most impact on you? Um, basically, just the family life. I, I really loved the idea of them living together and spending the days together and eating together and basically doing chores together. They always were together. And yeah. I, I loved that aspect of it. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? And Sue, what about you? Which character did sort of did you connect with the most? I just kept on thinking of the women and how I couldn't survive. I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. It's like, you know, you start with, let's say, flax, if you were able to grow that, which you then had to turn into strands, which you had to weave. And if you had a place to weave or, or turn it into, you know, the spindle and all that, or did you share that with all the other uh, crop holders? And, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I got to make dinner in another hour. Well, they had to do it several, you know, days in advance because they had to butcher and they had to do this if they even had meat. And there was just so many things that it's like, I couldn't do this. I knew I wouldn't survive. <laughs> it's not not only that, you'd have to sort of like walk walk half a kilometer to to the back to to get some water. Right. You could drink. You'd have to bring back to to the cottage to make ale. So yeah, and it. I've got a well right out here with a nice fresh water, and it's like all I got to do is turn on a faucet. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? I tell you, I say it again, we are spoiled. Well, and just even, you know, I mean, the muddy conditions. You know, and, and they wore the long dresses and, you know, they didn't wash clothing or themselves all the time. So, you know, you just did with what you had, the one outfit that you wore and maybe one pair of shoes and maybe you had another shirt or something you would wear on Sundays for church or a wedding or whatever. And it's, yeah. it's amazing. They had so many kids, really, when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. My husband does a workout. I'm like, I'm not going near you. You stink. <laughs> <laughs> but then they also knew their life expectancy was short. So, yeah. And life was precious in those days. It really, really yeah. was. Thank you so much, Amber and Sue, for joining us today. And, oh, our and pleasure. I know yeah, you probably enjoyed Paul's book, and I'm so excited. Paul, when is it? When is release day? When is it going to be available yeah. to purchase? Uh, so the the cover of the official cover reveal will probably be within the next week or so, um, and then it'll probably be released um, before May. Okay, oh, fantastic. And are you considered a Goodreads author? Like, if I wanted to find it on Goodreads, since I've already read it, I can check it off that I've read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, it's, it's not obviously it's not on there yet. Yeah, yeah. It will be, and it'll be uh, um, it'll be in most. Uh, um, May, June, like distributors and uh, and shops. Um, the, the good my, thing my is actually actually in the process of, of opening um shops all around 
Australia, like bookshops. Um, so, yeah, it'll be, it'll be in there and um, obviously uh, available at um, Waterstones and, and AIDS and, and uh, Dimmicks and all, all those sorts of places. The fantastic news is, is for authors who have joined us today is that with Goodreads, you can actually upload um, your upcoming book month, months in advance. Whereas obviously with Amazon and other places, you can only do it within a certain short time frame. But Goodreads, you can put it on well on advance. So I discovered on my last book. <laughs> can I, can I just, sorry. Can no, I just thank Amber and Sue and uh, the rest of the ladies in your uh, book club for um, taking the time to, to sort of like read uh, Red Winter Journey. Um, I really do hope that you enjoyed it. And, um, and... It's great to meet you. Yeah, meeting you too. Really we yeah. enjoyed it. I second that. It's been absolutely fantastic and something I think we need to do again in the future. Yes. Thank you all so much for joining us on the Witty Writers Show. Um, we have been live on Facebook and YouTube, so make sure you like, subscribe, and click on the notify button so you don't miss any of our upcoming shows. Um, we are we have got a spicy book chat coming up, especially for Valentine's Day. So I hope everybody will join it, join in for that. We want to know what your favorite spicy books are. But thank you so much, Paul, for being such a fantastic guest again. I'm so excited for your new book. Um, please tag me and let me know all the dates that it's coming out and where it's going to be because we've got so many viewers who who just love your work um, and, and are always excited about anything you do. And thank you so much for Amber and Sue for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. We hope to see you next time on the Witty Writers Show. So bye for now and tune in again soon. Bye, everybody. Bye -bye. Thanks, bye. Beth.